Well, I invite you to turn over with me in your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We've had some great sermons over the holidays with Phil preaching on Christmas Eve and then Joel doing a great job last Sunday on New Year's Eve. And today we return to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 4 with just a few verses left to cover in the letter. And so between this week and next, it's my plan to finish our study of this great letter. In our last sermon, we focused on the two major calls in Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6. So go ahead and look at those. Chapter 4, verse 5. Do you remember this? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's a great passage. Ends with a great promise. Remember that verse 6 at the end? And the peace of God, this is verse 7 actually, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in today's sermon, we're going to look at the last two major calls in this series of commands. They're found in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. So let's read those. 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, so as we read through those verses, could you spot the two main commands? Verse 8, think about these things. Verse 9, practice these things. First verse is about how we think as Christians. Second is about what we do. And then, as Paul often does, after a bunch of commands, what does he do? He ends with a promise or some kind of word of assurance, a promise of grace. Verse 9 at the end, and the God of peace will be with you. (laughs) So at the end of the last set of commands that we we talked about last time, Paul ended with a promise and the peace of God will guard you. And then after these commands, he ends with another promise, and the God of peace will be with you. That is our hope in a hard world. Our hope is in the peace of God guarding our hearts and in the God of peace being with us wherever we go. Now let's let's go back and take a closer look at verse 8. So I'm going to read the verse again. Finally, brothers... And sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We're going to talk a lot today about our thoughts. You notice the first word there in that verse, finally. This fits well. Paul's wrapping up the letter. But then right after he says that, he uses the same phrase six times. Whatever is this. It's not, he could have said, you know, whatever is 
true, lovely, good report, but he actually repeats the, the same phrase six times. Whatever is this, whatever is this, whatever is this, to describe what Christians are supposed to think about. Okay, what are the marks of a good thought life? It is to be thinking about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Okay, now I want to I pause and I want to I think today. I want to think hard about thinking. Okay, start with a few thoughts about the verse as a whole. And then we're going to just focus on a couple of the words, the virtues that Paul highlights in the text. So start with some, some thoughts about our thoughts. It is clear in this text, if you take the two verses together, that God cares about both how we think and what we do. Think these things, practice these things. Right? God wants us to be fully his, both body and mind. Christ bought all of us with his blood, but not just that. I like to say Christ bought all of all of us, both body and mind. So in light of that, throughout the whole Bible, it is not enough to do the right action in public while thinking bad stuff in private. And it's also not enough to think good thoughts in your head and to never actually do anything in life. Okay? God cares about what we think and what we do. And these verses are one of the clearest reminders because it puts those two things together. But this is certainly not the only place where this is highlighted in Scripture. I want to think a little bit about what Jesus said. I think what Paul says here is right in line with Jesus' teaching about the thoughts, about the heart. Jesus repeatedly emphasizes the need for both right doing and right thinking. Okay, maybe some famous words of his come to your mind. I'll just share a few of them. There's a lot of places you could go. Something he says in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe is the first thing that comes to your mind. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay. Or how about Mark, Mark 7? Maybe you remember the story in Mark 7. People are upset with Jesus because his disciples eat without washing their hands ceremonially. And they're like, Jesus, don't you realize that defiles them to do that? What does Jesus say? This is in Mark 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Thoughts about sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. That's what defiles a person. Okay, when, I, when I read texts like this, one thing I remember is that I think most people today have no idea what Jesus actually taught. Okay. He was really intense in his, in his teaching. Okay. But for right now, I'm just pointing out that Paul's emphasis on the thoughts is right in line with Jesus' own teaching. Now, second, as we think of this verse as a whole, okay, Paul lists a bunch of things. 
pure, lovely, true. Okay? But, but I think we would agree this list is not exhaustive. I don't think that's Paul's point. The, the specific things he says are important, of course, but Paul could have added other good things or he could have probably switched some out with other good things. It's, it's not intended to be exhaustive of everything you could think about, but it's representative of what a Christian mind should be filled with. Okay? So, for example, we might, we might add, well, shouldn't we also think thoughts that are wise? Shouldn't we think kind thoughts too, humble thoughts? I think Paul would say, yes, you should think all of those kind of thoughts too. But this is representative of a good Christian thought life. Okay? Third, it's worth pointing out, as you look at the list, that a lot of these qualities, if not all of them, at least in theory, okay, are commended by those who don't know Jesus too. I mean, think about it. How many people do you know that would say, I disagree with that list? I mean, I think we should be thinking about stuff that's false and ugly and unjust and filthy. I doubt we know many people who would say that. And the, <clears throat> the same thing would have been true in Paul's day. That's why a lot of writers on this text point out that a lot of these virtues, if not all of them, you could have probably found another list in his day of things that were praised in the Roman world. Okay? So my question is, what should we do with that? Okay. Okay. On the one hand, we should praise God for that, I think. Okay. We should praise God that our world is not as bad as it could be. Even in places of great darkness, people are still made in the image of God and have some awareness of what is right and wrong, what is virtuous, what is shameful, what is good, what is evil. We, we can and should praise God for that. Okay? But I think we need to recognize that even though there may be some agreement on the surface between what Paul says and what non-Christians might say, Paul's view of what is true, noble, pure and lovely, is fully Christianized. To put this another way, it's only through the lenses of Scripture, Christ and his cross, that we will really understand what Paul has in mind by what's noble or true. As one writer I, I read recently noted, I mean, just think of how Paul stood for Jesus against the Roman Empire on, on his stand for Jesus being Lord. Okay? And many Christians in Philippi did the same thing. Okay? And they suffered for that. Okay? So, but think about that scenario. We look at Paul's stand for Jesus, and we think that's noble. And yet the Roman government would have thought that's not noble. Right? We look at that as a stand for truth, and the Romans would have thought that as a standing for lies. We, we look at any judgment of Paul or other Christians in the first century as unjust. And yet, the Roman government would have been doing that thinking this is what is just. 
to carry out these judgments. <coughs> okay, do you see what I'm saying? There's agreement on the surface between what Paul commends here and what may be commended by non-Christians. But to really grasp what Paul has in mind, you have to read the words through the lenses of Scripture, Christ and his cross. And the same thing is true today. Today, I think people would agree with the words in the list. But there are huge disagreements about what is pure, about what is commendable, about what is just, and even about what is true. And this is often the case, even in regard to the most foundational matters of life. Like There are huge disagreements, for example, about whether there even is a creator, or whether that creator has indeed spoken to us in the Bible. There are huge disagreements about what is truly just or unjust in a society. Big questions about what makes a man a man or a woman a woman or about how to define yourself or find yourself or about the value of life, whether we're speaking of the unborn or the elderly or the marginalized, there are, there are fundamental disagreements about the purpose, goal, parameters of sex, and, and so much more. Okay. What does it look like to think the right things about those things? To set your mind on what is true and just and lovely. Okay. I'm just trying to point out, you have to read the words through the lenses of Scripture Christ and his cross, because the agreements may be more on the surface when there's disagreements under the surface about what actually is true or what is good. Now, now I want to zoom in on a few of the things that Paul mentions. <clears throat> okay, I think each word is worth thinking about, but we're going to zoom in on just three of the things in that list. I want to think about those. Okay, the first thing that Paul says here is to think about whatever is true. I want to share something in my own, in my own life. Okay, I have found it helpful to remember that this call comes immediately after Paul's counsel in the last two verses about how to deal with anxiety. Okay. Paul's primary counsel about anxiety is to turn every care you have over to the Lord in prayer. Let your requests be made known to God. But I would add that another part of the cure for anxiety is found right here. It's to set your mind and your thoughts on whatever is true. Okay. Now, sometimes, admittedly, things that are true can lead to anxiety too. Okay? Like, like if, if you're told that you actually do have cancer, that will likely lead you towards anxiety. You have to deal with that. But I, but I find, at least in my own life, that, and probably in yours, that many of our anxieties are driven or fueled by allowing our minds to run after things that are either untrue altogether or that are at minimum uncertain. 
So instead of doing that, fix your mind and thoughts on things that you know are true. And for Christians, what is incredibly good news for us is that what matters most in our lives is true and unchangeable. And so there's lots of things that can anchor you in life. For example, Jesus is risen and reigning. That is true and unchangeable. Jesus is with us even now, even in this room. That is true and unchangeable. Jesus is coming and all will be well. That is true and unchanging. God knows and God cares. True, unchanging. Paul's first counsel is to think about whatever is true. Second, Paul ends the the list of six with whatever is lovely or commendable. Those two words seem to move beyond what is simply morally right to what is beautiful, to what is lovely, to what is worth delighting in and filling your mind with. Paul says, fill your mind, your thoughts, with these things. And now a lot could be said about that, but I'll just point out some good examples of this for you to consider. David and the other psalmists were really good about doing this, about thinking deeply about beautiful things and letting that settle their hearts and lead them to praise God. Okay? For example, when it comes to thinking on things that are beautiful, I think especially of psalms like Psalm 19, Psalm 104, the psalm I read earlier today, Psalm 139, where the psalmists meditate and ponder deeply on the beauty of God's word, God's character, and God's world. And I love how Psalm 19 and Psalm 104 end almost the same way. Psalm 19, remember, it's this psalm of meditation on the beauty of creation and the beauty of the word. And then what does the psalm say at the end? Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 104 is a psalm that meditates very carefully and in detail about how God cares for all the creatures of the world. And I should love that psalm because he loves all the animals (laughs) of the world, right? And what does the psalm say at the end? May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. There's a lot we can learn from the psalmist, and also I would add from some of our great hymns, like I Sing the Mighty Power of God is a good example, about thinking deeply about beautiful things. And then third, Paul adds, after the list of six, an even broader idea, where he just says, if there's any excellence. And, And I think this suggests that Paul wants Christians to set their minds not just on what is not bad, or even on what is just okay, but to set their minds on what is excellent. Okay, think about this. We can only think so much in a given day. Paul wants us to raise the bar 
from simply what is not bad to what is really good. And the point that I want to make here is that this requires discernment. It requires some discernment to distinguish between what is good and what is evil. But I think it probably requires more discernment to distinguish between what is just okay and what is truly excellent. And for that kind of discernment, we should pray. What should we be setting our minds on? What are the things that are truly excellent in God's eyes that requires a discernment that we should pray for? And if you want a good guide for how to pray for that, I would point you to Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter. Because I want you to hear what he prayed for, for these people at the beginning of the letter. He says, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you can approve what is excellent. And so be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Now we come to the the last verse of the main body of the letter. Paul's second call in text, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So there's the call to right thinking and to right living. But notice that the call to right living or right practice is directly connected to Paul's own teaching and example. What you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things. And that is the same theme we looked at a few sermons ago, the theme of imitation, or the idea that we all need examples to follow. Okay, that runs throughout the whole letter. It starts in chapter 2, where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. And then he writes a poem about the humility and obedience of Jesus. It goes on, where Paul points to Timothy and says, look at Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. Everybody else thinks about their own interests, but not Timothy. You know him. Look at him. Then he goes to Epaphroditus. Welcome and honor guys like that, because he nearly died working for Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul shares in more detail than anywhere else in his letters how he thought, what he valued, what his greatest ambitions in life were. And that all led to Philippians 3, verse 17, where Paul said, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And now in the last major command of the letter, Paul comes back to that one more time, and he says, what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things. These people had the privilege of hearing Paul preach in person. They had now received, heard his letter, and they had had the privilege of watching his life. They had heard his words. They had watched his ways. He says, practice those things. Now, sometime this year, I want to come back to this theme of imitation, and I want to look at how the whole New Testament develops this theme. But, but for today, I hope we've caught, just from this letter, the heart of Paul's teaching about this. Paul placed great importance on having good examples in your life to watch, to talk to, to learn from, and to follow. We all need examples to follow. It does not matter how far 
down the road of following Jesus you are. You need other people that you can watch and follow. It's certainly true. We could say, well, Jesus is our perfect example. Yes, he is. And we get to know and watch Jesus, especially in the Gospels. And we should devour the Gospels, and we should praise God for them. But that does not undermine the importance of having people you can see with your own eyes who love Jesus and walk like Jesus that you can follow. One of God's greatest gifts to his people is the gift of godly examples. This is part of why you need to be in the church, because there's all kinds of people in the church who've walked the path God's calling you to walk, and they've seen God do stuff in their lives, and you can watch them follow them and get to know them. So I just want to ask, who are the people you've already been watching? Think of the last year, or at the turn of the year. Who were the people that you watched last year? That you tried to imitate? And as we look ahead to the next year, who are the examples that you are going to seek to follow? Who are the people you want to get close to? Not because they're perfect. Paul himself says in this letter, not that I have already obtained. He says that right before he tells people to imitate him. But who are the people that you want to draw near this year to? Because you think they have something that you want. They've seen something about Jesus. I see them, I hear them pray, and I struggle to pray. Who are the people you're going to draw near and follow? Paul ends the letter, or the body of the letter, by telling his friends what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Practice these things. But that's not the final phrase of the text. First verse is about how we think. Second verse about what we do. But as Paul often does, he concludes the whole series of commands with a great promise. Verse 9 at the end. And the God of peace will be with you. So at the end of the last set of commands, remember, the peace of God will guard you. The end of this set, and the God of peace will be with you. Our hope for obedience, for success in right thinking and right doing is this, that the peace of God will guard us and that the God of peace will be with us every step we need to take. Now, as we wrap things up in this study on this whole series of commands, I want to do two things. I want to First, think just a little bit more about thinking, and then I want to come back to something I shared at the beginning of this study of all of these commands and end with that. So a few more thoughts about our thinking. I want to think specifically, how should we apply this? From our text today about thinking, we're reminded there is a choice involved in obeying this command. Paul commands us to think about certain things. And the corollary of that is don't think so much about other things. Think about these things, right? God cares about both how we think and what we do, okay? We're commanded to think good things, but that is hard, right? This is a battle. There is a battle in our minds every day about what we're going to think about, how we're going to think, to think certain ways and to reject other ways of thinking. And there are lots of people trying to get us to think certain ways that God doesn't want us to think. There's a constant battle going on for our minds. So I want to think a little bit more about this. I want to start with what we're supposed to do with bad thoughts. 
Now, sometimes thoughts come into our minds that we don't want. We can't always explain where they come from. Thoughts enter that we really didn't want to think. Thoughts we hate. How do we think about that? What should we do when that happens? I was thinking this week about that. Reminded me of one of my most memorable scenes from Pilgrim's Progress. One I've often thought about. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, the main character, is going through the valley of the shadow of death. And he is having a hard time. And what we're able to see is that there is an enemy from Satan that sneaks up behind him and whispers terrible things in his ears. Bad thoughts enter his mind. And in the story, what's so interesting is that we know where the thoughts came from, but Christian doesn't know. And so, because of he's thinking these things, he's incredibly disturbed by them and even more discouraged in the valley of the shadow of death. That seems very true to our Christian experience, doesn't it? And yet, at other times, okay, at other times, we know that some evil thoughts that come into our minds, we know the source. They're sourced in our own past and often in our own sinful choices and the things we put willingly before us and into our minds. And those things come back and we wish they wouldn't, but they do. What should we do in either case? What should we do with bad thoughts that we wish we didn't have? One, cry out to God for mercy. Cry out with the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And then, no matter why those thoughts came, or where they came from, when they come, we are responsible to consciously reject them and to choose to set our minds on true things, on good things, lovely things. If if we just keep telling ourselves, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, it will not be enough. We need to reject them, but we also need to replace evil thoughts with better thoughts. That's the point of this text, setting our minds on what is true, honorable, what is right. The other application I want to consider about our thoughts is that we do need to take responsibility for what we are going to fill our minds with day by day. You cannot change what you put into your mind in the past. You, You can pray. I've prayed. Many of us, we pray that God will rip out evil things so that they'll never resurface, but you cannot change what's already been done. But we do need to take responsibility about what we're going to put in our minds. See, sometimes thoughts enter. We have no idea where they came from. But more often, what we think is directly connected to what we've been filling our minds with recently. And I imagine you experienced that even this week. Okay? Our minds tend to drift 
to whatever we filled our minds with lately. If we fill our minds with football day by day, night by night, with stats, playoff scenarios for the Steelers, injury updates, <laughs> podcasts, so forth, yeah, it's to be expected that our minds will drift to the same things even when we're not engaged in them. Okay? That's also true, though, with sexually charged things. If we fill our minds with sexually charged mu movies, music, books, let alone pornography, what do you expect? It's to be expected that our minds will drift to these very same things, even when we're not actively engaged in. But this works the other direction as well. If we fill our minds with scripture, Bible teaching, preaching, Christ-honoring music, and so forth, it's, it's not going to be surprising if over time your mind actually starts to drift towards those things, even when you're not actively engaged in them. And here's where I want to just give one warning about 2024. This year, we will be bombarded with political news. Okay. And I just want to say about our news in our culture, what is deemed newsworthy today is virtually the exact opposite of this list. That's like the only stuff that's in the news. <laughs> okay, not exactly the only thing, but it's pretty close. And what is deemed newsworthy today is virtually the exact opposite of this list. That doesn't mean it's wrong to engage in the news, political podcasts, so forth, but we need to recognize that this is the case. <clears throat> okay? What is newsworthy in our culture right now is far more often what is dishonorable versus what is honorable. What is crude versus what is noble. What is impure versus what is pure. What is ugly versus what is lovely. Okay, and the warning is simply, we better be careful what we choose to fill our minds with because our thoughts will tend to drift to whatever we've been putting in our heads lately. And then lastly, I want to step back from this whole talk of all these commands and I want to remind us with what I started with that there is gospel soil beneath all the commands. I mentioned this several weeks ago. Whenever you're reading Paul's letter, he often ends with a list of commands. And we always have to be careful that we don't strip away the individual commands from the rest of the letter. Here in this letter, behind these commands, which have been direct and challenging, there is a letter full of the gospel where Christ and his cross are central where the resurrection, reign, and return of Christ are proclaimed, where there's grace and a firm belief in the working of God. So as we talk through the commands week by week, I hope we felt the weight of them to not be anxious, to let our reasonableness be known, to rejoice in the Lord always, to think the right things, to practice the right things. I hope we feel the weight of the commands. We should. Paul wanted us to feel it. But we also have to remember the gospel soil beneath all the commands. When it comes to our thoughts, for example, we need Paul's challenge. I've needed it. We also know we need to look at Christ as our example and to follow him. We're supposed to put on his mind. We should feel the weight of all of that. And yet we must remember that Christ is not only the perfect example of how to think. Christ is first our savior for not thinking rightly. 
Perhaps this week, you have thought terrible thoughts. Terrible thoughts about other people. Shameful thoughts. Thoughts that you'd have to admit you even thought intentionally. Sitting here, you might be ashamed to even think of the thoughts you thought. What should you do with that? Run to Christ. Remember that Christ died for those ugly thoughts. Remember that Christ was completely pure in both body and mind. And rejoice that Christ died for our failures in both deed and thought. Look to Christ in repentance and humility again, and you will find mercy and pardon again. But that's not the only way the gospel connects to the commands. We also need to remember Christ is risen, present with us. The Holy Spirit is at work showing you those thoughts are ugly, giving you a heart to say no to them, giving you a disgust for them, a longing to think what Paul's saying. God himself is at work in us both to think and to do his will. So let's hear the call today to walk worthy and to think worthy of the gospel. And let's feel the weight, but let's also remember the gospel soil beneath it all. A gospel that provides real pardon through the blood of Jesus for all your failures and that provides real power both to desire and to do and to think what pleases God. And for every part of the battle ahead, let's take heart in Paul's closing promise. The God of peace will be with us in whatever steps we need to take. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words, simple, challenging words and great promises, And would you do all the work that you want to do? We thank you for your care for us. We thank you for buying us through the blood of Christ, both body and mind. Help us to think worthy and to walk worthy of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.